Hi, everybody. Welcome to Kip Nugget. I'm your host, Callie. And I'm co-host, Hagana. I don't even introduce you anymore. That's fine. <laughs> People are like, we know who you are. So, Hagana, what do you want to talk about today? Well, today is Monday, September 28th, 2020. And just last night, the New York Times article broke about the massive trove of tax data, tax returns and other documents that they just received um, on President Trump's taxes. And because you have some familiarity with this topic, I thought today we would talk generally about rich people taxes, one of our favorite topics. Oh, I love rich people taxes. Okay, so uh, let's qualify this whole thing. When I first graduated from law school and during law school, I worked for a, a big law firm and part of my legal practice was executive compensation. So... It was so to be clear, their entire this is an entire specialty of law called executive compensation. Right. Like there are pure executive compensation lawyers, partners that do nothing but rich people taxes. Rich people taxes. Okay. And rich people comp. Because a lot of um a lot of what is involved in rich people taxes is setting things up in a way for which they will not these people will not have to pay taxes. So a lot of this um, is determined at the outset and how pay is structured versus, you know, it comes to be tax time. Ooh, how can we can we give another $200 to charity so we, you know, adjust our, our income? Um, th- there is a system. There um, are very common ways to reduce your tax bill and to reduce your income per year. And um, people like me, lawyers like me, we're the ones who work on employment agreements and incentive compensation packages and all that kind of stuff um, so that when an executive decides to separate from service or, you know, retire, whatever, uh, that executive will benefit from a tax perspective going forward. Okay, so there's two things I wanted to ask you about that you just mentioned. One is incentive compensation. So this is what's often been criticized in the media as – CEOs only care about the next fiscal quarter. If the stock price is up, they get a big bonus. Therefore, they're always just trying to pump up their stock price with stock buybacks, things like that. So is so you're saying that this this all comes into play when they're first hired? Yeah, well, I mean, hired or when their employment agreement needs to be renewed. Um, so incentive compensation isn't just like an annual bonus. Incentive compensation can be long-term as well. So I think what you're referring to is, um, uh, you know, maybe a, an annual bonus that's tied to the performance of the company. But you also have long-term incentive compensation like restricted stock, um, stock options, uh, performance grants, things like that. So so these executives do have some sort of incentive to keep the company healthy and you know for at least a longer period of time. Gotcha. So they give stock options so that their interests are basically aligned long term. Right. And those those options or that restricted stock, I mean it's usually restricted stock uh, options aren't as common. But um, they'll vest over time based on performance of the company or just over time, just based on service. So maybe over the course of four years, three years, and each grant, each new grant of stock of um, options, it will come with a new vesting schedule. Um, And typically, again, those are kind of standardized, but when you have uh, 
an executive that you're recruiting or maybe a whole suite of executives that you're potentially, maybe you're buying their company or you want to, um, to hire the whole, the whole set of them, they will negotiate uh, for different terms than what like your standard long-term incentive plan would allow. Uh, sometimes you'll have a, an incentive plan just for the CEO. Okay. Now we can come back to that later because Trump is not a traditional public company CEO the no. way that no, not Jamie Dimon or Jeff Bezos is. Right. He's, he's really a principal. He's really an owner of his own company. Right. And, and mostly real estate. So his tax situation is going to look very different from your traditional C-suite um, Fortune 500 company executive. So he's really an owner who owns a lot of stuff. And so one of well, the- Well, he- that's again let's caveat this whole conversation based on what we're seeing in the times we have an incomplete picture of trump's financial situation because we can't we have to make assumptions based on the information we have because we haven't seen full full tax uh, transcripts so we will be making assumptions in this podcast and i think you know, pundits are making assumptions, but the assumption is that he owns a lot of stuff. The other uh, thing to consider is that he licenses his name to a lot of buildings. So it's not necessarily that he owns, you know, every building that his name is on. He does license his name, which is interesting. Okay. Now let's get away from Trump just for a second. And if we're going to talk about rich people taxes, I think we have to talk about Jeff Bezos. Why not? He is literally the richest man in the world Whew. on his way to being the richest man in history. And I think his wife is the, or his ex-wife is the second richest person now after they got divorced or uh, she's up she, there. She, I mean, she was up there for a bit. Um, it really depends on Microsoft stock and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and all that. But yeah, <laughs> instantly when he divorced her, she was one of the richest women in the world. I think she got like $40 billion or something from that divorce. Yeah. Anyway, um, I want to talk about Jeff Bezos because obviously he's really rich, but <laughs> Amazon, you know, as a company, unbelievably successful, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we heard a lot earlier on in the primaries when Bernie Sanders was more in the news was, oh, you know, Amazon made such and such profits and they paid zero dollars. You know, right. and, and it sounds horrible, but it's actually not as egregious as you may think because of something called a loss carry forward. Yeah. And so this, I think, is something that you know, first of all, if you're a business owner, you, you your accountant should have made you familiar with this. But the basic idea here of a loss carry forward is that when you have a business, especially with a new business, right? So if you have a new, let's just open a gas station or a restaurant or let's, let's get a gas station, right? So when you first open a gas station, it costs a lot of money to build the pumps, to build the building and really startup costs, right? Right. And so the first year of any business, you're probably not going to make much money. If at all, more likely you're going to lose a lot of money. Now, it seems unfair because we pay taxes generally on a yearly schedule that in year two, let's say you finally start making money, but you've lost all this money in the first year. So the idea of loss carry forward is you take that loss from that first year or whenever it was, and you basically get to apply it to future profits until that amount runs out. Exactly. Now, this is a huge oversimplification, but that's basically the idea, the idea. Because otherwise, how could you ever make money if you had to just eat that loss at the beginning? No one ever made it. Now, Amazon's been doing something very interesting. They have been making money for a long time, but they take every bit of that money and put it into growing their company. Right. So it used to be an online book company, right? They used to be online Barnes & Noble. And as soon as they started making a lot of money, they started 
expanding and investing in themselves so that they really are not taking any profits. They're constantly expanding. I mean, let's let's use a much simpler example. Let's use Tuck because we've employed the exact same strategy. We've used all of our free cash flow over the past three years to expand. So for those of you not familiar with Tuck, we're a brick and mortar bar and yoga studio in Philadelphia. We started with one studio. That studio was making good money. And we used all of that money that we had made. Hagan and I have never taken a distribution from the company because we use our free cash flow. We use the money we're bringing in to open a new location. Um, and so it just immediately goes back into the business. So you can employ that kind of strategy. And with the combination of losses from the early years and using all of your capital to grow and to, you know, buy more buildings and, invest in more, you know, infrastructure, building widgets or whatever Amazon's doing, um, more warehouses, then you, what you look like on paper for tax purposes is very different from, you know, your bank account or how successful you are as a company. Right. Now back to Jeff Bezos. This is weird. I didn't mean to defend Jeff Bezos, but (laughs) this is is actually what's going to end up happening here because Amazon, right? Because, um, you know, really, I, I want to address the Bernie criticism because those memes that I see on Facebook, they're really effective. But I do think they're a little bit disingenuous, right? Like, for for instance, since the pandemic started, Amazon's stock price has been up like 50, 60 percent or something, right? So Jeff Bezos's net worth, which is almost entirely Amazon stock, is also up 50, 60 percent. So he went from being worth 60, million, 60 billion to maybe 120 billion. Um, so on paper, he's much, much wealthier. But really, it's the fact that what he owns is now worth more, which is almost all stock. It's not like he got a check for $60 billion or that his employer paid him $60 billion on which he is now going to pay taxes. So there's right. really no tax liability for him to pay. Well, well, but let's, And he's not even doing anything really shady, to be perfectly right. fair. No, he's absolutely not. But let's be clear. Amazon's tax returns are going to look very different from Jeff Bezos' tax returns. His personal returns, I think his salary is something like, it's under a million dollars. So he's paying income tax on that million dollars personally because he's a W-2 employee of of Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's important not to conflate the two. There is your individual tax returns, your individual tax liability, which is what we have a sense of with the New York Times article for Donald Trump. And then there's the entity's tax returns, right? There's Amazon's tax returns. There's Amazon's tax liability, which includes, you know, employee withholding, um, property tax, all kinds of stuff. So let's just, I just wanted to make that distinction. Okay. Now bringing this back to Trump, some news of Trump's taxes has leaked in the past. So even before the 2016 election, we knew that between 1985 and 1995, uh, over that decade, Trump lost almost a billion dollars in total from his casinos. Now, the loss carry forward, it's usually used when you start a business, but it doesn't have to be, right? It could also be that you have a really bad year and you're in the red and then you get to do the same thing. So Yeah, and you get to carry forward, I think it's for 20 years. I think you can only carry forward losses for 20 years, something like that. Um, so back, you know, I think even in the debates with Hillary Clinton, he was asked, oh, did you carry that forward? And he said, of course. And he's perfectly allowed to do that. Uh, now what we've learned from yesterday's data dump is not only did he carry that forward, it seems like he really hasn't ever made money, which is the weird thing. And, and, and that's, I think that that's the important point to make here is 
that there is a contradiction in the person he puts himself out to be and the person he he assures banks that he is when he applies for mortgages because he is very highly leveraged. I think that's one thing that we've seen. Because let's say, for example, leverage. What is leverage, Haganah? Let's just go back because I say that and I'm sure some people are like, wait, what does leverage mean? It just means you owe a lot of money. You're, yeah, so, you're holding a lot of money that is not yours and hopefully you'll make money. With so it. you're using other people's money in the real estate sense. You're using other people's money to make money. Let's use a simple example, mortgages. Let's say we want to buy um, a second, third, fourth home that we can use for rental purposes. So let's say we take out loans for those properties and we get renters. Our mortgages every month are $2,400 a month, but rent is $2,500 a month. We're making a couple hundred bucks every month from rent, but it's not as if we're making $2,500 a month. We're actually making 200 because we're leveraged. Yeah. We have to pay our debt first and um, and this is almost any business. The idea this in is business any is business. You borrow money, you do something useful with that money enough so that you can pay the debt, pay, make payments on the debt like monthly, and then still have a little bit left over. That's right. the hope. Right. And so for someone um, who is leveraged, like Donald Trump is leveraged, um, for example, the New York Times article shows that he has hundreds of millions of dollars in loans coming due in the next few years. Loans that may be his entity's loans, but he had to personally guarantee. Now, Haganah, in our experience in small business world, when do we have to sign personal guarantees? Usually right at the beginning when the <clears throat> when we're first starting out, because when you first form Tuck LLC, like why would you lend that person money? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So for us, when we first started the first Tuck, we had to sign a personal guarantee on the commercial lease so that if Tuck Fitness LLC couldn't pay the rent, then Haganah Kim is going to pay the rent. Um, it's basically the bank saying, we don't trust your we company don't trust to pay you. it back. Right. So we also want you personally to be on the hook. Right. And um, and we had to sign a personal guarantee for our second lease. But since then, we have not had to sign a personal guarantee. Um, and I think that with the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars of, of Tr the Trump organization's loans are personally guaranteed by Donald Trump tells us one of two things. Again, we have an incomplete picture here, but it could also be that he's, he's creating new entities that have no history, right? Which is totally fair, reasonable, or that banks aren't, um, aren't, are concerned with the credit worthiness of his, his business entities. So they ask for a personal guarantee. Um, for, I think that the most important thing that I've seen from the New York Times data is that there is a contradiction. What he says to banks to get, to even have access to that capital, other people's money to make money, he ha is either conflating his profits and his um, ability to generate cash there, or, you know, maybe he is exaggerating losses or taking expenses that maybe shouldn't be expenses um, for tax purposes because the two can't exist. Yeah, actually, I want to make it even simpler than that because I think one of the misconceptions that's out there is people, they don't know much about rich people taxes. So they assume, oh, so-and-so is really rich. They don't pay taxes because they're so rich. 
And that's kind of their incomplete understanding of it. But there's a huge difference between why Jeff Bezos doesn't pay taxes on what is his increase in wealth right. and why Donald Trump is not paying taxes. Right. And so the reason Jeff Bezos is not paying taxes is because most of his wealth is um, sits in stocks, right? So he's not going to pay any tax until he sells, right. until he has a taxable event, which is the sale of that stock. Right. And that's really the key difference. Like Jeff Bezos, if he wanted to retire and if he wanted to sell Amazon, I mean... You're going to skip over some details because obviously he can't sell it all at once. But in theory, if he could, he would suddenly have a huge tax bill on what he now exactly earned as income, a taxable income. Exactly. Um, and well, let's be clear though, much of much of the wealth that he has accumulated would be taxed as capital gains, not ordinary yeah, income. No, still, but right. still, twenty percent on a hundred billion dollars is a lot of money. Twenty billion dollars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Okay, that's different than what Donald Trump is doing. Which where, is carrying losses yeah, so forward. Basically, he just had such a huge loss a long time ago that he's been, any money that he makes, he just counts against that, and therefore he doesn't pay taxes. And Because he, he's really never made it out of that hole. Right, but but I think the New York Times piece says that um, he hasn't paid taxes. So you said that he... Um, confirmed that he used the carry for he carried the losses forward from the 80s the 90s when he went but in the new york times article it's also talking about the last 15 years he yeah has paid and zero. so here so, what was interesting to me first of all i had no idea the apprentice was such a successful show i know so in, in the new york times data dump he made something like 425 million dollars from the apprentice which blows my mind right like i did i honestly don't know anyone that watched the apprentice like i just I mean, we watch a lot of TV. We never really watched The Apprentice. No. Like, I, I just don't know any... Anyway, he made all that money. Um, this is in the 2000s now, about 10 years after he lost the first billion. And he took that money and went on a shopping spree buying hotels, golf courses, etc. And those new assets that he now owns, which he bought with The Apprentice money, which he, The Apprentice money he legitimately made, Right. all of those, thing, those things that he's bought have been losing so much money that... He is now again well, not really paying any taxes. I, I think that any person who owns a golf course will tell you that a golf course is not the way to get rich. Like golf courses are notoriously bad investments. And oh, are they really? I had no they're idea. They're so terrible. Yes, it's just a bunch of grass. How how hard could it be? Yeah, but you so so you have. <laughs> I'm never. I'm not a golfer. You have, you have a whole bunch of real estate. You have maintenance. Um, it's so expensive to water. You have to have a golf pro. Like it's. Any company I've worked with, when they've had a golf course, they've immediately divested it because it's just not a good business. Um, that's beside the point. Okay. So, yeah, that's the distinction here between Jeff Bezos and Donald Trump. Jeff Bezos, his money is, he may not pay as much in ta in his personal taxes um, aside, you know, from regular tax on his salary from mm -hmm. Amazon because most of his money is tied up in stock that has not been sold. So there's not a taxable event and we don't tax wealth. We tax income. So, um, that money will sit in the stocks until he decides it is payday. Um, and, and he sells it. Okay. So even though Jeff Bezos's wealth has increased by billions and billions, he can't go to the ATM and withdraw an extra $20 billion. Right. Right. But you can, really right. But you can always, Right, borrow again, but right, yeah. borrow again. But let's avoid that topic for now. Okay, okay. so um, we've explained the carry forward uh, issue. 
Now, let's also talk about one other thing that became apparent in the New York Times article, which is the expenses, the business expenses that Donald Trump claims to have. Uh, for example, one of the one of the like jaw dropping ones was the seventy thousand dollars for hairstyling for The Apprentice. Which is a little weird because you would think the apprentice, apprentice would, pay would be for paying his hair that, makeup, but whatever. Right. Um, so, Hagana, what's a business expense? What's allowed? What are you allowed to uh, deduct as a business expense on your tax return? I mean, on your taxes? Almost anything you, if you can justify that you used it in in the operation you, of your and business. And you can substantiate it, right? Yeah. You can substantiate. It. You have some sort of so receipt we, yeah. or invoice or whatever. You can show that you've spent the money as if as as you're saying you have, and it relates to the business. But there's not a hard line saying, there's no IRS guidance that says you can't take an expense for hairstyling. Mm -hmm. But what does it say? You have to be able to justify it, and it has to be in the operation of your business. So we own Barn Yoga Studios. It, you know, we're not going to get audited if we buy a bunch of yoga mats because obviously we're using them in our business. We may get audited if we all of a sudden buy a Tesla or... <laughs> I don't know, an arcade game machine or something, right? Like, right. That has nothing to do with our business. Right. Um, and then in between those two examples, there's a whole lot of gray. Right. There's a whole right. lot of like, gray. Like, for example, I can count my hair, you know, hair salon expenses as business expenses if, for example, I had to get my hair done so we could record videos for, um, you know, Tuck Online or for a teacher training because – you know, I want to look good on camera and it's for that specific event. IRS guidance says that's okay. But like a monthly blowout, no. Um, it has to, like you said, it has to relate to the business and you have to be able to substantiate those expenses. Um, so I, I think my point here is just that the business expense is malleable. Um, it was very malleable. I, I remember a few years back, 50 Cent was, I think, going through bankruptcy. I hope it was 50 Cent. Uh, I just want to make sure I get that right. But in one of in a music video that he released during the whole bankruptcy proceedings, he had stacks and stacks of cash. And the, you know, obviously the bankruptcy judge was like, what, what, what the heck, man? Like, where's all this money? And he said, Hey, my business is selling the image of a successful rap icon. I have to project this image. It's a part of the image to use it. Yeah. It's just a prop, but Hey, I have to project this image. So, you know, you can think of things in media, like movies, like almost anything couldn't be, argued to be a business expense. There's a huge gray area and it's really case by case. And it's not until the IRS actually audits you that someone is really going through this stuff. Right, right. It's not as if um, when our accountant does our taxes for Tuck and our personal taxes, it's not as if our accountant is saying, I've got to submit all of your receipts to the IRS. You have to have your receipts, your invoices, all of that stuff, you know, filed away somewhere and documented, but you don't actually need to substantiate all of those expenses when you file. Right. Um, so it's really adjusting. And I don't think we've kept every single receipt. Like we were, No, we have credit card no, statements I mean, for no the most really part. Does, yeah. yeah. But, but, you, but the point well, is, you can real, claim anything to the IRS. Real, real businesses do, Hakana. <laughs> yeah. But, but, um, but like small businesses, I mean, you, yeah, you... It's much more relaxed, I think. Um, like when I get keys made at the 7-Eleven, like I may or may not keep that receipt. Right, right. Um, so so I guess what we're saying is that there this, this expense term is malleable. It's open to interpretation. Um, reasonable minds may disagree on what can be expensed. 
Um, however, it it can be there are some clear ways to to game the system that are not legal. <laughs> where it's very clear that an expense shouldn't be categorized as a business expense and you are, and that is not legal. So for example, let's say that um, you pay one of your W-2 employees, you create a, you draft a side letter and you pay them to be a consultant instead of a W-2 employee because you want that consultant to be a 1099 contractor that can write off his or her business expenses. Whereas you're very limited when you are a W-2 employee. Um, let's say you have a home office. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's limitations. Let's just, let's not go into the whole unreimbursed business, business expense thing. But um, there are ways to do that, that definitely skirt the, the tax issue. Um, and, and would actually, be considered by people in the industry as, as fraud. Yeah, and so that's the final point I think that's really important to make is just because we got or got some data on Trump's tax returns doesn't mean that this is the actual accurate picture of his financial situation. This is what he submitted. He and his accountant submitted. Right. We know that there was a difference between what he said was in his taxes and then what turned out to be on the tax returns. Right. There may be just as big a difference between what's actually in the returns and what's really the what's state of What's really, finances. right, exactly. And, and let's say Donald Trump inherited $500 million from his dad. He put $100 million away in an, in an account. Um, it's you know, being managed, whatever. And he invested $400 million and lost all of it. He still has $100 million that he tucked away. So we're only seeing that picture of the $400 million that he lost. Um, I'm not... To be clear, we don't know we that don't he know. did that. We it's don't just, know that he did that. That's certainly possible. This is a 10-year snapshot. So we don't know what came before. We don't, like, yeah. If he had money sitting away that he did nothing with, it would not show up on a tax return because it's not a taxable income event. Right, right. I just think that the the thing that was most telling about the, you know, the snippet that we've seen is that there is a contradiction there. Um, you know, for banking purposes, his income assets are tend to show a healthy business, whereas his tax returns do not. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's the only point I wanted to make now. What I, I think before we let this go, before we get off topic, I want to dispense with a narrative because you you briefly mentioned the Hillary, um, the Clinton-Trump debate back in 2016. And when Hillary brought this up and brought up the fact that he was paying nothing in, in federal tax, he said, well, yeah, because I'm smart. Um, that's th There's two ways we look at people who don't pay taxes. We have this perspective, if you're rich, that you're smart. Ooh, he's not paying taxes. He's smart. And if you're poor and you're not paying taxes, it's a moral failure. Oh, you're not paying your fair share. Mm, you're just taking from the system. Mm, judgy eyes. We need to get rid of that completely. Um, it, it should be the same perspective for both for both people. Yeah, and actually, part that's one of the biggest things I want to do is defeat that notion. Oh, rich people, they have rich accountants, therefore they don't pay taxes. And it's just something that rich people, smart people do. No, they're only, first of all, it's not that complicated. Right. Like, at the end of the day, it's not that crazy. Like, right. sure, the paperwork, the whatever. But 
there's only a few ways that you can do it. Um, one is the Jeff Bezos way, right? Which is really the Warren Buffett way. He, Warren Buffett, he firmly believes in never Never taking, taking a distribution. Dis- distribution. Just right. keep he it just, growing. Yeah, keep yeah, it keep growing. That's, that's really what Amazon is doing. He's paying himself, you know, a million dollars in salary. But really, his wealth is just building and building and building. Right. And at some point, you know, Warren Buffett too. If he did decide to sell Berkshire Hathaway, he'd have a huge taxable event and right. a huge tax benefit. Th- that's not what Trump's doing. He's just not making money. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's just... <laughs> And those two are so completely different. There's not some rich people, smart people trick that lets right. Trump just make a bunch well, of money. Like, but he can't make Bezos money and then also be the only one to not pay taxes. Right. He's right. Just well, but but money. there's, I mean, there there may be sort of real estate tips and tricks like taking deductions for depreciation and things like that. But let's not get into that. The other way, so there's the way um, that the other way to sort of game the system the smart rich person way way is to defer compensation Mm -hmm. into later years when you may not have as much you may not be making as much maybe you're taking okay so really explain that for us okay so um let's talk let's use let's use a basic example that most people know your 401k that is a deferred compensation plan you are you're making this money now let's say you make fifty thousand dollars you're making $50,000 this year. However, for tax purposes, you're only making 45 because you've put you've deferred $5,000 by making a contribution to your 401k and electing to receive that money in retirement. So you're not paying taxes on that money because a 401k is a tax qualified vehicle. So you're not paying income taxes and you're deferring that that income to the future when you're going to be retired and not making money. So Okay, so rather than make $50,000 today and get taxed on the $50,000, you're, you're making and getting taxed on $45,000 and you're and then once deferring, you're retired yeah. 65, 670 whatever, you'll then take that $5,000. $5, right. But that may be all the money you make. You may not even owe any taxes on that. Right. That's and idea. and so what what people why people do this? Let's say that um you are taxed at ordinary income rates and you're taxed at 35% um on a federal level. So we have a marginal um tax rate in the United States. So on your first, I don't know, $10,000 of income, you don't pay anything. You don't pay any federal tax. On 10,000 to 25,000, maybe you pay 10%. I don't know what the tax brackets are. Um, I only know the top ones. But you you keep it keeps going up. So each next subset of income is taxed at that hiring um, rate. That's not to be confused. I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, well, um, you don't want to be in that higher tax bracket. You don't want to hit 35, 37% because then all your income's taxed at 37%. That's not how it works. We have blended rates. So maybe your overall effective tax rate is like 24%. You're only paying 37% on that last, you know, $200,000 of income, not on all of your income. Um, but most executives, most rich folks, uh, they play the deferred compensation game. So they they don't just have a 401k plan, which is subject to limits set by the IRS. So you can only contribute less than $20,000 per year. It's actually something like 18600 or something. Um, but you can only contribute that amount per year. You can only defer that amount. And then your company can put in 
a certain amount too, but that's all very regulated. If the, um, if you contribute more than that to your 401k, it's a big deal for you personally. Um, which is why your 401k plan won't let you, they'll shut it off. Now those limits don't exist when we get into some of these other types of deferred compensation plans. So for example, a company could have a 401k. So an executive can put forth, can defer that amount of money. Then a company may have what's called a supplemental, let's call it a supplemental 401k, where you can go, if you reach that limit, you can defer more money into this other type of plan. Then there's something called a deferred compensation plan. It might be called a key employee deferred compensation plan. It might be called an officer's deferred compensation plan. Again, no limits there. You can defer. How are they able to do this without limits when the 401k has limits? Because that's a tax qualified vehicle. So you are not basically, let's not get into that too much, but let's just, let's just say that there is, there are limits in the 401k world because that's a qualified plan. And then we have non-qualified plans. Um, it's just different rules, just different rules. Okay. No, no, no. You gotta try to explain it because this is the stuff that makes me think, oh, rich, smart people, they're separate rules. Well, but see, ultimately you have to have an employer who has these things. So with Penn, you have a supplemental, you have the supplemental 401k, but you are not, at least at your level, you're not eligible to participate in if they have a different deferred compensation plan. But for example, um, at some companies speaking generally, they'll have an officer's deferred compensation plan where you can, um, elect to defer up to 50% of your bonus and maybe up to 50% of your salary for the year. And you have to make these elections in advance. So it's not as if you can just say, so, so it's the companies that are doing this, not the individual CEOs. Right. But the companies are only doing this because of the CEOs okay, and so the, the companies C-suite. are doing it on behalf of the CEOs for the benefit of the CEOs and the C-suite. Yeah. It's, it's for the benefit of the people who make more money than they need to live. That's what it is because you put your money in these deferred compensation vehicles and you can invest in the stock market. That money can grow, right? And it's growing in in this tax advantaged little haven. Um, and then when you separate from service, which is a term of art, um, maybe you are you quit or you're terminated or you retire or whatever, you separate from service and then you, your election, and depending on what the plan allows, but your election dictates how you're going to be paid that account. So maybe you're paid in lumps, lump sum. Most people don't elect to do that because they don't want all of that money being paid in one year because a significant chunk of it's going to be taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. So typically you see people elect to be paid over the course of 10 years, 15 years, um, maybe sometimes three or five, but it's, it's rare that you'll see people be paid in lump sum. So it's essentially just a way to defer income into the future. So you're not paying taxes on it, but it's still yours. That, that, um, account is in your name. It's not as if your company can just take your money away though. Let's be clear. A non-qualified plan, like the deferred compensation plan that I was just talking about, a 401k, that money is yours subject to, you know, investment losses. Let's say you're with a company like Enron and you have a deferred compensation plan and you've been contributing 
to this plan and the company is using that money to, or maybe they're using phantom investments, but they're using that money to invest. The, the actual distributions are paid out of the general assets of the employer. So they are still subject to the employer's creditors. So for example, in Ron, let's say you thought you had $10 million in, def- in your deferred comp plan. They go under, that money is subject to the creditors of Enron. Oh, so it's okay. still so, so at all those risk. people that said like they were paid in Enron stock or Enron they deferred compensation right. that were working for Enron. Right, they lost it all. Right, so they would have been better off just right. taking the full salary or whatever. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they literally lost it all. I mean, this is such a, this is such a. So there is some risk. There is some risk, of course. There's some risk, but so you have to at least believe that company is going to be around. Right, but most people, again, most people are not affected by. Um, you know, general creditors, because most companies that are offering these kinds of plans are big public companies. Granted, we have in run, <laughs> you know, things right. like that do happen. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, you could technically lose it all. Very, very, very unlikely, but possible. It sounds like something would be really useful for professional athletes. Yeah, I would assume that professional athletes have some kind of, I'm assuming their team set up it's not expensive to set up these kinds of plans. Mm-hmm. Um, you just, you know, if you have a 401k plan, you have lawyers that can help you set up a, a different kind of deferred comp plan. But this would totally benefit professional athletes if if they don't have these sorts like, of... Especially if you make, I mean, the average NFL career, for instance, is like... It's two and, two and a half years. years. Yeah. Right. You, you want... Like $3 million per year. Right. Then, but you could spread that out for the rest of your life. Like, right. it's a huge tax advantage. Right. And that's what they... If they're not doing that, that's a sin. Like, that is a a failure on, on the organization's part. Because that is the way to ensure that people have security when they're injured, inevitably, and they can no longer play again. Um, you know, getting an injury... For purposes of 409A, that's a separation of service if you retire from football. Um, so, yeah, that they could secure their athletes' futures um, by encouraging them. You know, if they're not doing that, you should start a law firm and then just pitch that to sports teams. <laughs> I mean, they should be doing that. They have to be doing that. I, I wonder, if there are any professional athletes, can you let us know if you have deferred comp plans um, with your team? Because if you're not, if you don't, that's something that, you should work on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's rich people taxes. Okay. So the, the name of the game is deferring income. So that's really the, that, so deferred compensation is the real way to, when, when you think of like a loophole for CEOs, that's really what they're using. Yeah, that's absolutely it's not fancy, crazy that you have to. No, okay. no, it's literally just having, and this, there's, it, it, there's this complex web of all of these things and they all work together. You know, you'll have your long-term incentive plan with your restricted stock grants and your options and all of those things. And then maybe you're um, with restricted stock, you're in a tax advantage situation because you're filing different elections and how you'll be taxed. And then there's all these other plans where that allow you to defer compensation. So you're taking just what you need and letting the rest grow in an account um, so that you can take so that you can take it later. Before we close, I just want to ask you for a just a blind guess. If you had to guess how many executive compensation lawyers there are in America, how many would you think? Um, I mean, all of the big law firms have 
a department. I don't know. I would say, I'm sure there's this, that is out there somewhere. I would say like a couple thousand, a thousand. So a couple thousand of the smartest lawyers in the country are working on executive compensation. Oh, I mean, this is a very technical field and uh, so much brain power. Like uh, the area I practice in is ERISA. So it spans, you know, and, and executive compensation. So ERISA is sort of those tax, um, those tax qualified plans we talked about, a little bit of tax, a little bit of labor law. And executive compensation is both of those same things as well, as long as well as employment and contracts, because you're drafting employment agreements and helping people negotiate packages. Um, but yeah, the, the, it, it is not a frowned upon practice It's very, like, it's so much brain power. It just reminds me of all those like statisticians from MIT who could go to NASA, but then go to Goldman Sachs. Right, exactly. No, it's, it's the same it's kind of thing. It's a brain drain that it's goes a, to serving. And, and, and I used to feel um, a certain kind of way about it. Um, but then you realize if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Um, because the rules exist in this way. And honestly, one of the biggest, one of the biggest things in our tax code that bothers me is how we structure investment income versus like wages, like oh, ordinary income. Like why does capital gains exist? Capital gains, not exist. I mean, when you're thinking about structuring a society, so for those of you who don't know what a, a capital gain is, it's essentially money that you make from a passive investment, like owning a stock or... Um, a baseball card. Let's say you happen to got... Right. 1940, your dad bought a Babe Ruth baseball card for a dollar. Right. It turns out to be super rare. Now it's worth a million dollars. Right. That gets taxed to capital gains, which is less than... Right. Ha- essentially half. Yeah. Um, so it's half. You know, if you're in a certain bracket, it's 15%. If you're in a a different bracket, it's 20%. If you make like no money, it's 0%. Um, but then we, the that's unlimited, right? But we're taxing like, at like a half like in, rate. In essence, in my mind, you made that money easier than working. Right. <laughs> no, but it, that's, that's the thing. You have a finite number of working hours and we tax that money that is, has this, this limitation built in at, you know, 37%, 40%, whatever. But the money that you can just use other people's money to make, that we tax that at 15, 20, it doesn't make any sense to me that we've structured it that way. And obviously there we can get into more nitty gritty loopholes like, you know, executives structuring um, their compensation as profits interest. Okay, don't get too so, geeky. So then they're- This is getting really geeky. Okay, no, let's just briefly talk about it. Go for it. Okay, so let's say that you have an LLC that's taxed as a partnership. <laughs> Shut up. Under our current under our current framework of tax law, you can issue a CEO of profits interest, and that CEO what can an ABC tax as a dinosaur. Oh my god. Okay. Anyway, the point is you can get. Essentially, if you have the resources to set up these sorts of things, you can have your what should be considered wages taxed as capital gains rather than ordinary income. And again, the difference here is resources. Um, And should we really be structuring our tax code um, and by default our society based on who has the most money to hire me? 
no, it shouldn't work that way. And it wasn't that the tax code was always this complicated. It's just, it used to be probably very simple, like all income, right? Federal income taxation, yeah. 101. <laughs> like it used to be all income. And then like every year, like someone lobbies Congress for this right. tax break. Right, I mean, we're, we're, we're reactive as well. Like for a while, remember people were really upset about carried interest mm-hmm. exception. Um, you know, we, we plug holes and then we make more holes. And it's not as if our, our tax law is just wrapped up in the code. There's all kinds of other things. You know, we have tax court rulings, we have case law. Um, so it's so complex. People say, oh, we just need to reform our tax code. But what they fail to realize is we have so much of our of our tax law is just interpretations of things um so you have to go even if you say what was the herman cain plan 999 yeah (laughs) let's say you have new 999 (laughs) plan from herman cain um you know then you still have to interpret that and that takes decades and decades to work through the issues um because it's very clear that we can't just rely on the words on paper because you can't possibly address every situation, which is why people uh, take issue with Scalia's form of judicial activism and claiming that you can. So that's definitely a topic for another time. Let's talk about that later because that's going to come up with this um, new Supreme Court nomination. Anyway, I think this is a good talk. Rich people taxes. Rich people taxes. Rich people taxes. And you should not be mystified anymore. Okay, you should not be mystified. And also, be proud to pay taxes. Am I the only person that's... I'm, like, proud. I don't even think about paying taxes. I don't think about it either. It's like, okay, we we pay so much in property taxes and school taxes. We don't have kids. We've literally never complained. Ever. We, We don't... It's not even on our radar. Again, we are privileged and we are privileged. But, like... I feel proud. I'm like, oh my God, I've paid that much in taxes and it's April? You're paying taxes just because you're winning. It's because you're making money. Like a lot of it. Like Mark Cuban said that. He said tax rates never entered his mind when deciding to start a business or not. I literally have never thought about taxes. Like ever. Like the only time I think about taxes is at the end of the year when we have to get all of our documents to Linda, our accountant. Um, Yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't affect any of my decision making. It doesn't, I don't feel angry about it. I don't feel any, it's just like, yeah, I don't believe in so many things that our taxes pay for, but like, I do believe in a good education for kids in our neighborhood. And I do believe that we should have, you know, roads and bridges. I'll pay 5% more for guaranteed school lunches for all children. Me too. Easily. Easily. Like feed the kids. But like, I... Do I agree with like our military budget? No, that's where most of our money. Do I agree with the way we handle our healthcare I think system? Said to me personally, before like people who are afraid of higher taxes are people who are people who are afraid they can't make more money. Mm-hmm. I'm very confident in my ability to earn money, and I know that. Let's say that something happened. I can go get a new job, and I can or I can learn a new skill. And again, I'm privileged. I have a great education, and I know how to learn. But I'm confident in my ability to make a living. So I never feel like, oh, I can't pay as much in taxes. It's an honor. It like really is. It's like, holy shit, I make so much money. I get to pay taxes like this. I don't even care. 
but I think I'm like the only person in, on the planet. That's probably the most positive ending we've had to a Oh my gosh. So let's, be let's proud to be a taxpayer. Yeah. I'm proud. We're contributing. It's yeah, good we're contributing, Haganah. High All five. Right. All right. Till next time. Bye. Bye.